0: I were with a group of fanatical basketball fans, and I was to say some random player in the NBA was better than Michael Jordan. I'm sure I'd get some weird looks, right? And if they thought I was being serious, some of them might just brush me off, thinking that's not a conversation worth having, but there might be one or two who want me to explain myself And explain why i thought this certain random individual was better than the one many considered to be the greatest and there are certain things on that checklist that those basketball fans would probably ask me about that random player they would ask me questions like how many scoring titles has he won because jordan has won 10. how many gold medals Jordan has two, how many finals MVPs? Jordan has six, how many league MVPs? Jordan has five, how many championships has he been a part of because Jordan has six championship rings? Those numbers better match or surpass Jordan or that argument's not gonna hold water, right? If I were to hang out with uh, some serious music critics, And I were to say that a certain band is more successful than the Beatles. And if I were to mean it, better have some stats to back that up, right? Because they would probably ask me questions like how many albums have they sold? How many gold records do they have? How many hit songs have they they written? How many generations have been influenced by their music? Again, those answers better match or surpass that of the Beatles, right? Or uh, that argument's not going to hold up. One more example. If I were to hang out with some serious movie critics and I were to say, so and is a better director than Steven Spielberg, they might ask me questions like, okay, how many Academy Awards does he or she have? How many Golden Globes? How many Best Picture, Best Director Awards has she, he or she won? How much money has their movies grossed? How has he or she been influential in other actors' and directors' lives? Again, better match or surpass that of Spielberg if that argument is going to hold up. Well, in the same way, the same went for anyone in the first century who tried to make An argument to a group of Jews that someone was greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Aaron, greater than all the Levitical priests. If you were to make a statement like that, which I'm sure very few did, you better have a list of facts about that person to back it up. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. We are continuing our sermon series through Hebrews today entitled Jesus is Greater. And we have seen in the first six chapters of the book of Hebrews that this is the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. He's writing to Jewish Christians who are struggling spiritually. History tells us that they were going through a difficult time because they were Christians. Christians were being persecuted at this time. They are also being heavily influenced by the competing belief systems of the day, one of those being Old Testament Judaism. They were being tempted to re-embrace their old beliefs and practices, and some of them were tempted... In moving away from the fulfillment of those teachings and practices the Lord Jesus and they were drifting spiritually and the author of Hebrews responds by reminding his Jewish audience that if you have Jesus you have everything you could ever possibly need and the reason why is because Jesus is greater greater than what greater than everything he is God's greatest revelation He is greater than the Jewish prophets, greater than angels, greater than Moses. And in the past few chapters and the chapters to follow, we're going to see that the author is also going to emphasize the fact that Jesus is a superior priest, greater than Aaron, greater than Levi, greater than Abraham. And here in chapter 7, the author is going to devote an entire chapter to explain why Jesus is a superior priest. In our passage for today and next week, the author is going to make the argument that Jesus is from a greater priestly order than Aaron and the other Levitical priests from the household of Aaron. Now, before we get into why Jesus is from a greater priestly order, and talking about that, we need to first take a moment again to explain why the Jews would care about this and and why we should care, right, about this. Why should we care that Jesus is from a greater priestly order? Well, a few sermons back I explained how the Jews viewed the priesthood and how they understood their need for a priest remember i've told you that the original audience of hebrews they were jewish christians and they had a good grasp on the old testament and the priesthood and man's need of a priest they understood their sinfulness and their need for their sin to be covered and understood their complete inability to atone for their own sin the old system was set up to show them that okay they understood their need for a go-between, a priest who was like them, but one who had been called out from them and had been appointed by God to offer up sacrifice for sin on behalf of them and their people. And they knew that God had set this system of priests in place and had chosen the priest to come from the tribe of Levi. Remember, there were 12 sons Jacob. Jacob was also known as Israel. He had 12 sons. And from those 12 sons come the 12 tribes that make up the nation of Israel. And God set aside one of those tribes, the tribe of Levi, and one household from within the tribe of Levi, the household of, of Aaron, Aaron's family, Aaron's descendants for the priestly responsibilities. That's why we refer to it as the Levitical priesthood or the Aaronic priesthood. You with me? And we learn that after this priesthood was established, no one was allowed to do what they did in offering sacrifices to the Lord, not kings, not prophets, no one. The responsibilities were reserved for only those Levitical priests who came from this one family of Aaron. Y'all remember who Aaron was, right? He was the brother of Moses, and he was around during the time of the Exodus, and it is during this time when the priesthood is officially formed. And again, these priests were extremely important to the Jewish people because they were the only go-betweens for the Jews. That's why to the Jew, the office of priest was considered so sacred, so important. They understood their sin and their need for their sin to be covered and understood their complete inability to go before God on their own. That was a job reserved for the priest. That is why this office is so exalted. The priests were the connection between God and men. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur once a year the Jews knew they couldn't go in to the temple into the holy of holies into into the holy place into the most holy place and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat the high priest had to do that on behalf of the people and that was the earthly place where God and man met was in that place and only the high priest could enter in he was the one appointed by God to mediate between God and men. That's why they revered this office. And this Jewish Christian audience in the book of Hebrews understood this. And they were even drifting back toward this system, starting to look to and elevate these priests once again and praise this old System. Well, the writer of Hebrews is writing to tell them there's no need to do that. There's no need to look to these flawed go-betweens any longer because Jesus has come. Our superior high priest, he has lived the perfect life we could never live he has offered up the perfect and final substitute and sacrifice himself in fact we have said that the priest really did nothing more than point people in faith toward god's great high priest to come his forever king the lord jesus they pointed people in faith toward the work that he was coming to accomplish at Calvary. This Jewish Christian audience needed to be reminded of this so that they would not drift from the faith, but continue to look to and trust in Christ alone. And believers, we need to realize that as well. Do we not? We have said in the past that though we don't often think of being in need of a priest, we think that's a, a Catholic thing, right? We're, we're not in need of a priest. We are We, too, are sinners in need of forgiveness. We need to realize there is nothing we can do by our own power to take care of our sin, to cover it and atone for it. Whether you realize it or not, it's it's true. God is clear in his word. We have fallen short. We are sinners set against God. Every one of us enter in desperate need of someone to stand us and represent us before God. One who can truly offer up a worthy, acceptable sacrifice on our behalf to cover our sins so that we can be forgiven by God and made right with Him. We're in need of that. Every one of us. The author of Hebrews reminds us of the fact that there is one who has been appointed by God to be that and to do that for us. His son Jesus. Jesus was Sent by the Father, he also came willingly. He became one of us, he lived for us the perfect life we could never live. A sinless life, a life in perfect fellowship and relationship with the Father, and he has also acted as our priest. He offered up the perfect sacrifice for us on our behalf to cover our sin, and that sacrifice was his own life, himself. He laid his life down for us and he was raised for us, passed through the heavens for us into the heavenly holy of holies as our priest. And he gives us, all of us who are in him, who are trusting in him alone for salvation, access into the presence of the living God and secures us there forever. It is essential that we we understand that and see our need of Christ as our priest. The Jews needed to come to terms with that. We do as well, which is why Jesus being our superior priest is a major emphasis throughout the book of Hebrews. This is really the heart of Hebrews. Now, there was one major hang-up we talked about last week and earlier in this series for the Jews about this teaching that Jesus is our great high priest, better than Aaron, and that was that Jesus was not from the tribe of priests. He was not from the tribe of Levi, not from the household of Aaron. He was from the tribe of kings, right? From the tribe of Judah, from the household of David. The writer of Hebrews understood this, which is why he says all that he does here in Hebrews chapter 7. Verses 1 through 10. In this passage, the writer of Hebrews is going to make the point that Jesus is from a different, a superior priestly order. The priestly order of Melchizedek. Now, we have talked a bit about Melchizedek, we're going to talk more about him today. And next week. But before I explain to you who Melchizedek was and this connection that he has to Jesus and why he's a better priest than the priests who come from the tribe of Levi, household of Aaron, first I have to explain to you a biblical term that is very important for you to understand for our text this week and next week, okay? So bear with me for a minute, we're gonna get a little technical. The word is typology. And I can already feel your eyes glazing over, all right? Come back to me, come back to me. It's real easy, real easy term. Typology. There are many theological terms that we use when we study through the scriptures that help us study through the scriptures, and this is one of those important terms. The term typology, or when we say that that someone or something is a type of something, we're saying that that someone or something pictures or symbolizes someone or something else, okay? They're mostly found in the Old Testament and they primarily point to the person and work of Jesus. There are many pictures in Scripture given that point to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, in the Old Testament, when lambs were sacrificed for sin, those are pictures of Jesus, right? You know that. They were to be without spot or blemish, which pointed to Jesus' perfect nature. Remember what John the Baptist said of Jesus? John 1.29, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Those Old Testament sacrifices were were pictures of Christ and the work that he came to accomplish. The tabernacle and later the temple, that was a picture of Christ as well. Christ, the God-man coming to tabernacle with us, to dwell among us, to be with us as God's presence was with his people in his holy dwelling place on earth, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in the Old Testament. God's presence was with his people in in an even realer sense, right? In the person of Jesus in the first century. Jesus even referred to his body as the temple. He said, destroy this temple and in three days what? I'll raise it up, right? John two nineteen, When Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and, and, and three nights, that was a picture of Christ, remember? Jesus said that this was a picture of the work that he came to do. He says in Matthew 12, 40. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You see? Types, pictures of Christ. Christ well when we get to Hebrews 7 we have one of the greatest examples of typology in the New Testament because it just goes on and on and is mentioned over and over again right in the person of Melchizedek now if you've been with us for a while now you should know a little bit more about who Melchizedek is if you're not familiar with him it's good you're here today all right come next week too you'll get another earful He's one of the great examples of typology in the New Testament. And if some of you are wondering, then why have I never heard of him if he is? Well, don't beat yourself up. We have most of what we have about Melchizedek in the book of Hebrews, okay? So if you've never done a thorough study through the book of Hebrews, you may have never really studied much about Melchizedek, just glossed over him. He has talked more about in Hebrews than anywhere else He's only mentioned briefly in the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, we have three little verses about Melchizedek. And about a thousand years later, we have a single verse about him in Psalm 110, verse 4. In that verse, we are told that a forever priest will come after the order of Melchizedek. Remember, we looked at that verse last week. It's quoted by the author of Hebrews at the end of chapter 6. So who is Melchizedek? Why is he mentioned here? Well, people land all over the map when it comes to who he is. Some argue he was an angel, but that argument is easily refuted because we are told that Melchizedek was a priest. And remember, we learn in Hebrews 5.1 that the priests were chosen from men to be representatives for mankind. So a priest had to be a man to represent mankind. All right? So they were not angels. He was not an angel. He was a man. Others argue that Melchizedek is Jesus in a pre-incarnate state in the Old Testament what that means is they say Melchizedek is Jesus appearing in human form before he took on flesh dwelt among us during his earthly ministry here's the problem with that argument we're told in Hebrews 7 3 that Melchizedek resembles the Son; he is like the Son. if he was Jesus we would be told he is the Son, right my hand is not like my hand it's my hand right we got Bill Widener in here this morning we wouldn't look at him and say He resembles Bill Widener, would we? He is Bill Widener, you with me? So, no, Melchizedek is a man. Again, we're introduced to him in Genesis 14. Mark your spot, flip over there, Genesis 14. We also have the passage up on the screen as well. Beginning in verse 17, look at what we're told here. So what we're told about Melchizedek. After his return from the defeat of Chedor Lomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's all we have here, okay? About Melchizedek. Some of you hear that, and you think, boy, how in the world can that signify anything, right? Well, it does. Let me explain what's going on. This is taking place during the time of of abraham obviously and it's at this time there were during this period of time there were little pockets of land that were ruled by different kings there was a king of sodom there was a king of the elamites a king of salem they all had their own little territories that they ruled over and there's this wicked man by the name of cheder he may be called kidder in uh, some of your translations With a name like that, you're bound to be a misfit, right? Well, he was. He was an Elamite king. He joined forces with three other kings. They began defeating all these neighboring lands. And one area that they defeated was Sodom. And when they defeated this area, they took away the spoils from war, but they also took captives as as well. And one of those they took captive in Sodom was a man by the name of Lot. You remember Lot? He was Abraham's nephew. Well, one of the guys escaped and reported back to Abraham. And so what Abraham does, he had some allies as well. He puts together an army and he overtook these rebels near Damascus. They defeated them in battle and they left all the captives and the spoils from war. And Abraham gathered those up and they began to make their way home with the captives and with the spoils from war. And on the way, Abraham has an encounter with a man named Melchizedek. We're told he's one of the kings in one of these areas, a place called Salem. We're going to talk about Salem more in just a moment. But we are also told that not only was Melchizedek the king of this area, but he's also priest of the most high God and when Melchizedek meets Abraham we're told he blessed him and we're told that Abraham took some of the spoils from war and gave a portion of it to Melchizedek he paid him a tithe 10% of that okay after that Melchizedek fades we don't hear about him again tell the Psalms and then later in Hebrews but that's the story all right And I know some of you are still scratching your head, thinking, I don't really understand what is so significant about this guy. Well, that's what we're about to see here. Remember the point the author is making to his audience. He's writing to a Jewish Christian audience who are drifting spiritually, all right? They're considering whether or not something is amiss in the Christian faith they're considering re-embracing many of the old beliefs and practices of the Old Testament Judaism and this includes the priesthood and the author of Hebrews is making the point Jesus is better in every way that's the main point alright he is the fulfillment of all that was promised to the Jews and here in this chapter he's making the point that Jesus is a greater priest than Aaron he is better than all the Levitical priests and to make this point he compares Jesus to this man named Melchizedek Melchizedek is used by the author of Hebrews under the inspiration of the Spirit as a type typology remember talked about it a minute ago y'all remember it still good he's a type of Christ and so the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he is writing here to show how Jesus is like Melchizedek. He is from a supremely priestly, he is from a supreme priestly order, the great order of Melchizedek that precedes the Levitical priesthood, the priest of Aaron. What is said about this king priest of Salem? in the book of Genesis, perfectly illustrates who Jesus is and the work he came to accomplish. That's what the writer of Hebrews is highlighting. Now, like I've said already, when we say Melchizedek's priesthood perfectly pictures that of Jesus, we don't mean Melchizedek was on par with Christ, right? We don't mean that. What we mean is the details from his life Mirror that of the person and work of Christ. Notice what we're shown here about Melchizedek and why he is a greater priest than Aaron and how his person and position it it pictures that of Jesus. We're going to mention two this morning, the rest next week. Number one, the Melchizedek priesthood was universal. That's one reason it's better. The Melchizedek priesthood is universal. Now, the priesthood of Aaron was national, wasn't it? Aaron and those after him were appointed to be the go-betweens for the Jewish people. Melchizedek's priesthood supersedes Aaron. Remember, the the time of the ministry of Melchizedek was before the Aaronic priesthood, right? Before Aaron, before the Jewish people. Later, when the priesthood is formed, we learn that the priests of Aaron were Jewish priests who went before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob on behalf of the Jewish people. But notice what we're told about Melchizedek. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Now, we'll come back to that first phrase in just a moment. Focus in on that second phrase. He is priest of the Most High God. Notice there is not a specific people mentioned that Melchizedek stands for his priest we know he's king of Salem but but not much more than that we're just told he stands before God right though we have the Levitical line of Aaron in detail in scripture we don't have anything like that for Melchizedek remember how important pedigree was to the Jewish people they wanted to know who your mom and daddy were right So they knew your place in society. This was especially true in the house of Levi from the household of Aaron. They wanted to make sure that their priests were supposed to be priests so that they could properly represent the Jewish people before God. Now again, Melchizedek had a mother and father. Grandparents, great-grandparents, but we have nothing listed here. All we're told is that Melchizedek was priest of the Most High God. That is significant, folks. The Spirit of God, by omitting these details, is having Melchizedek function as a type of Christ and is showing us that the priesthood of Melchizedek, watch this, is related to all men. Whereas the priesthood of Aaron was related primarily to the Jewish people. So when the author of Hebrews says Jesus is a priest, after the order of Melchizedek, he is making the point that Jesus is a different kind of priest. He's indicating what kind of priest Jesus is. Get this, he is not just the Messiah for the Jews, but the Savior of the world. That's what he's saying. That is great news for us non-Jewish people, isn't it? Jesus did not simply come to atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. He came to atone for the sins of all those who trust in him alone for salvation. Remember we said the Latin word for priest is pontifex. It means bridge builder. That's what Jesus is for us. He is the universal bridge builder. He came to make a way for both Jews and Gentiles to be forgiven of sin and restored to God by faith alone in his person and work alone. Paul says in Ephesians 2.13, in Christ Jesus, Gentiles, good news for us, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen? And folks, this truth is very important. Very, very important for us. To share with others right if Jesus only acted as a priest for the Jewish people we all would be in a helpless and hopeless state lost and condemned forever Praise be to God that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek and that he has accomplished this great salvation for all who look to and trust in him. And if you're here this morning, you're not trusting in him alone for your salvation, I urge you to do so before you leave here today. Listen, it doesn't matter who you are, what you've done. It doesn't matter where you're from and the family you're born into. That doesn't matter. What matters is, whether or not you turn from your sin, forsake your sin, and make Christ the Lord of your life. Any and all who do that, who surrender to the Lord Jesus, they're saved. If you turn from your sin, forsake your sin, make Christ Lord, you can become a part of his kingdom people. You can move from being an enemy of God to being a child of his through Jesus So Melchizedek's priesthood is better because it's universal. Notice point number two. Second reason Melchizedek's priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood is because it is a royal priesthood. Look again at verse one. For this Melchizedek king of Salem four times in this passage we're told that Melchizedek was king king of Salem king of righteousness king of Salem king of peace he was king Melchizedek in addition to being priest of the Most High God was king he was royalty this could not be said of any of the Levitical priests there was never that combination All right? Israel's priests were never kings. Their kings were never allowed to function as priests. When they did, they were punished for it. Remember King Saul? He tried to step in and be priest. That was a big no no. But we learned that Melchizedek was a different kind of priest. His priesthood was a royal priesthood, he was both king and priest. So is Jesus. Jesus' priesthood is like Melchizedek. He is the king of kings, the king of God's kingdom. He is his great king and high priest. That's awesome. That's an awesome truth, folks. Because you know what? The priest of old, we're going to learn as we continue on, they couldn't ultimately conquer sin and death. They could not destroy the works of the devil. They could not usher people into the presence of God. The veil continued to hang during the old system while it was still in place. But Jesus comes... Not just as a priest but as our conquering King what does it say about him it says he comes to destroy the works of the devil he comes to destroy sin and death and how does he do it through his priestly work through his death and resurrection Jesus is our conquering King and he is our great high priest wonderful truth there and this should not have been a surprise For the Jewish people, they were told by God through his prophets that Jesus would be this type of priest. Listen to Zechariah 6, 12 through 13. This is awesome. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch shall build the temple of the Lord It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And in the New King James and other translations, it says he shall be a priest on his throne. Who's that talking about? A priest on the throne It's talking about Jesus. This wasn't a plan B for God. He was the plan all along, the only plan. Professor of Old Testament and president of Gordon Conwell, former president of Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, Walter Kaiser, said this of this passage. Look at this quote up here. He says, This is the greatest Old Testament passage on the fact that the coming Messiah will be both a Davidic king and a priest. It was prophesied. Christ came to be our priest, but not in the order of Aaron. He came to be a king and a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Notice we're told he is the king of Salem. You know where that was? Talked about that. More than likely, it was modern-day Jerusalem before Jerusalem was Jerusalem, before the Jewish people. How awesome is that? God had someone representing him and leading in this area for him before Abraham, before Moses, before David, before the Aaronic priesthood. How about that? So watch this. We we see here there was another priest and another king representing God and representing another people before the Jewish people. It's true, right? It's what we have here. So get this, if God had a royal priesthood before Aaron and the other Levitical priests from his household, he can have one after, right? That's what we have with Jesus. That's the point the writer of Hebrews is making. He is a part of a separate, superior priesthood. Jesus is. And because of this simple application, we should look to and trust in him and be set apart for Him, should place our our trust and our, and our faith in Him, in His person and work. We should place ourselves under His authority and should be trusting in His superior work. That's the point the author of Hebrews is making. We're going to have to stop. We got through verse 1, all right? <laughs> I promise we're going to move quicker next week, all right? But it was important to kind of lay the groundwork for who Melchizedek is moving forward. But before we close, I want to end with this. Listen, if we are in need of a priest, follow my logic here. If we are in need of a priest, if we are sinners set against God, as God clearly says in his word that we are. We're desperately in need of someone to stand in our place before him so that we can be restored to God. And if Jesus is the perfect priest who has been appointed by God to us, if he is a universal priest who came to make a way for both Jew and Gentile to be forgiven of sin and restored to God through faith alone in his person and work alone, doesn't it make sense that we should look to and trust in him alone for salvation? Doesn't that make sense? Doesn't it make sense if this who is who Christ is? If he is our king priest who has accomplished our salvation through getting up off his throne and stepping out of eternity and into history by emptying himself, becoming one of us, condescending down to us to live for us the perfect life we can never live. And if it's true that he's laid down this perfect life and he's offered this perfect life up in exchange for our sinful one, doesn't it make sense that we should step off the little thrones of our own lives? And lay our lives down and bow our knee to King Jesus and make him Lord doesn't that make sense it's what he calls for us to do and nothing less than that have you done that have you bowed your knee to King Jesus have you stepped off the little throne of the kingdom of self that we like to cling to and remain seated upon have you stepped off of that and have you given your life up and over to the true king of kings our great high priest the Lord Jesus if not now's the time no better time than right now I pray you would if you have not let's pray